Olá, pessoal. Tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast, where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host, Aaron Stanley, and today I'm joined by a repeat guest, Isaac Costa, who is a professor at Inspire and Ibimaki and a widely cited voice on crypto regulation and policy topics in Brazil. Today, we're going to be diving into an opinion that was issued last week by the Brazilian Securities and Exchange Commission regarding crypto assets. This opinion was widely anticipated by the market, and by and large, it's a positive step forward, but it was met with rather mixed reception by the crypto community in Brazil. So I wanted to invite Isaac back on the show to help us better understand what this opinion does and does not say and does and does not do. Uh, Isaac used to actually work at the CVM in a previous life, so he has a pretty good understanding of how things work on the inside there. And he is very engaged in crypto regulation and policy topics now. So welcome back to the show, Isaac. Really want to get your take on this. Excited to have you back. Thank you for the invitation, Aaron. Always glad talking to you. So to get started, why don't you just give kind of a quick, like kind of reintroduction of yourself, kind of what your background is and, and what you're working on now. I used to work at CVM in the technical staff, people who do market surveillance, who uh, write the complaints and things like that. So in CVM, we have the technical staff that they're kind of uh, the accusators, right? The the prosecutors. And then uh, we have the commissioners. There are the judges. So I used in, in, in for the first years, I worked with the technical staff that were kind of like the market surveillance actors and prosecutors. And in my final years, I worked as an advisor for the commissioners. And then I'm a professor right now. I left CVM to become a lawyer and entrepreneur. And I'm here uh, studying crypto regulation, finance, and technology, everything in between finance, technology, and regulation. So in crypto, Clarity around this question of digital asset classification and, and particularly this question of when a crypto asset is and is not a security has been mm -hmm. literally the holy grail uh, of, for years now. Uh, as long as I've been in the space, like six, seven years that this has been, you know, people have been arguing about this probably even longer than that. I mean, it's kind of a it's running joke in crypto where like we're all everybody here is fully qualified securities law paralegals. We all <laughs> can recite the Howey test off the you know at a moment's notice, and that's that's a true statement. I I, I agree with that. <laughs> Point of that is that anytime a uh, a securities regulator issues guidance on this topic, it's a very big deal, right? Because mm -hmm. industry yes. has literally been clamoring for this, clamoring for this for years and years and years. Uh, in the U.S. and also elsewhere. So anytime there's any movement on this front, it's a big deal. So to get started, I was hoping you could give us some high-level context around just how this particular opinion that the CVM issued last week came to be. CVM has a new president who, as of a few months ago, who has now said that crypto is a, a pretty big priority for his, his administration. But the big question for me is really like, why are they doing this now? I mean, there's election season going on. There is crypto legislation that will presumably uh, be signed into law sometime soon, um, which which would perhaps nullify any any guidance that the CVM comes out with. Tell us kind of how we got here and like, why are they issuing this now? So in, in the beginning, uh, back in uh, 2016, 2017, I guess, uh, mostly uh 2017, we have the ICO fever, right? So people found out that they could launch a website, they could uh, 
provide some white paper with some sales pitch and then they get funded right to create a company and by passing all the current securities regulation so you didn't have to file the SEC forms or the equivalent for the CBM uh, all you got to do is to uh, publish your idea and provide a roadmap uh, how the tokens are going to be issued the price of the tokens and sometimes not even that right and by the end of 2017 uh, the ICO started to started to all the ICO fever started to um, fade out right uh, most projects failed and then we had a crypto winter in 2018 right so back then all the securities regulations worldwide they were concerned with the fact that investors they did not have enough information to decide whether or not a token was a good investment opportunity okay so we're talking here about uh, crypto as an investment not as a payment so in Brazil uh, the whole regulation debate is going through crypto being regulated by the central bank which is uh, which usually uh, regulates payments and prudential requirements for financial institutions and things like that so the central bank is not familiar with investments right so this is why in the US uh, you don't get the Federal Reserve to talk about crypto, but most of the time, either uh, the SEC or CFTC, right? Because this is a securities regulation issue. Then, uh, back in 2017, uh, CBM is issued a series of alerts indicating that, oh, this could be a Ponzi scheme. Uh, you must be aware of get rich quick schemes and things like that. People, uh, they, they push you to invest in a hurry. Uh, they try to exploit your fear of missing out. So this, this was a kind of a guidance in terms of investor education. What kind of generic that has anything to do with crypto? It's just that crypto could be some of the Ponzi schemes that we had in the past. So that that was it. And then in the next couple of years, we had several projects that got stop orders, right? Uh, issued by the CVM indicated, hey, this person or that company. You're not allowed to uh, offer these tokens to the market because these tokens, we understand them as securities. So prior to offering them to the general public, they must register with the CBM and that's it. So the holy grail of the, you becoming a, a kind of a paralegal in securities regulation is because that if you are a crypto entrepreneur, if you're a crypto founder, and then you're planning to issue a token, especially in the context of Web3, right? If somehow you are offering an investment opportunity to your uh, audience, right, your public, so they have a legitimate expectation of having some kind of economic benefits, and these uh, profits, these uh, results, they're getting, uh, they are a result of your effort, the effort of the entrepreneur, the effort of the founders, then it's probably a security, okay? And in that case, uh, you have to file uh, a form with the CVM and, and this is a costly process, this is a bureaucratic process. The, the, this can uh, somehow prevent you to put an MVP out there, okay? So this is why uh, the whole thing is important. So. Uh, in in the next couple of years, 
we have this uh, sub orders. J just give me a second here. Sorry about that. Just a second. Sure. Sorry about that. You can't did that because just my <laughs> uh, one of my dogs is barking in the background. Okay. Problem. We'll edit that. Out. So <laughs> that's okay. So back in uh, 2018 and 2019, we have kind of like a seven or eight sub orders, and finally in 2020 we had a couple of uh, decisions. Right, uh, kind of like the. The commissioners they finally uh, spoken about what are the criteria that CVM could use to decide whether or not a token is a security. So we had a couple of decisions there. The most important uh, uh, case was the iconic case, right? It was a kind of like a DAO that had a, a fund for. Uh, issuing tokens and, and collecting profits through that fund uh, for burning tokens. It was kind of complex scheme, but mostly a, a DAO scheme, right? So CVM thought that they were uh, securities and they were fine. And, and they applied a, a fine and they are appealing, okay? And finally, uh, we did not have a comprehensive statement of what are the criteria right for when a token is considered uh, publicly uh, offered right to the general audience. So if I have a website and I put in login and password uh, prior to uh, anyone deciding whether or not investing that token, is it a public offering or not, mm. right? Uh, this is one of the questions. And then if I have a token that it does not pay dividends, it does not pay any interest and the only uh, economic benefits that you get if by selling it in the secondary market. So is it a security or not, right? And if you have something like Axie Infinity, you have to do something in order to get results. But uh, at the same time, you have the effort for the company that is promoting the ecosystem, there is developing the code and everything. So is it a security or not? We did not have a comprehensive guide on that. And the previous chair of the CVM, uh, it, and, and the whole set of commissioners, right, they did not think that it was important not enough in the terms of risk-based uh, supervision, right, because the they have scarce resources and they have to prioritize what are the major risks for the market. And back in 2019, 2020, uh, the commissioners they did not think that crypto had offered his uh, major risk for the markets, at least in terms of all the risks, right? For all the rules and all the decisions that CBM had to do. So right now, this has this has changed, and we have a new chair and new set of commissioners. They uh, are open to hear what the market thinks about securities regulation. They are open to reform. Uh, to reduce the compliance costs. And this is why I think that uh, at this point, we have this guidance. And so the, the new chair who came in, I believe it was in July when he went, or mm -hmm. August. Yes. Yeah. So he's three months on the job. Uh, and it looks like his first, his first real, like, you know, substantive uh, thing that he's delivered here is a, is a paper or a, an opinion on, on mm -hmm. crypto asset guidance. 
he's he's been pretty proactive in talking to the press about how he wants to make uh, crypto a priority. I guess the question for me here would be, why is this at the top of his radar right now? And I, and I think mm-hmm. I think part of the answer here might be that he that the CVM has largely been outside of the the debate, the crypto regulation debate in Brazil. Yes. At this point, it's mainly been the, the central bank that's been the driving force in the crypto legislation discussions. CVM has kind of been an outlier, whether and I guess you could argue that maybe that's because they weren't prioritizing enough. Maybe they didn't have enough uh, resources to devote to this, like you were discussing. Is this an attempt by the CVM, by this new regime at the CVM to to inject themselves into the conversation a bit? You know, they realize they're late to the game and they're trying to inject themselves into the conversation. Or, or why do you think they're they're making this such a priority right now? Well, I believe that there are several factors, right? First, uh, we have lots of uh, retail investors attracted to crypto right through influencers. Uh, we have the whole landscape of uh, funding for crypto ventures. And um, in, in, in the incumbent institutions, they are looking for crypto, right? Uh, the B3 uh, the, uh, had the B3 digital assets, and uh, XPay and BTG, uh, they launched their their own exchanges, right? Uh, Mint, and uh, I don't remember the one, XStation, which is the one for XPay. So right now, crypto is not only uh, a sector in the economy that um, is restricted to crypto native companies. We have incumbents jumping in and uh, on the other hand we have retail investors jumping in and I believe that in Brazil we have many more uh, we have much more retail investors uh, investing in crypto directly than uh, investors in the stock market, in Brazilian stock market, right? Because of volatility, because of the kind of relatively easy of use, right? And uh, marketing, the whole uh, influencer uh, landscape and things like that. So incumbents are jumping in, retail investors are jumping in, and also uh, the central bank, uh, it was kind of successful. So it's very successful, actually, uh, creating, fostering new technologies in the banking sector, right? We had the BC hashtag agenda, which uh, allowed Brazil to uh, to become a world reference, right, uh, for fintechs and electronic payments and credits uh, products and new credit products, right. So we have more than a thousand fintechs in Brazil for credit, for payments, for uh, you know se- several uh, business models for that, and uh, it fosters the competition in the banking sector and I believe that CVM is looking into it somehow uh, trying to uh, capture some of these ideas and to foster competitions in the markets right in the broker uh, sectors in the investment advisors right uh, we have new rules for investment advisors we have we're gonna uh, have new rules for investment funds so CVM uh, they allow the ETF for crypto, I believe that Brazil was the third country, the third jurisdiction that allowed uh, ETFs for crypto, and we have major uh, success like Hashdex or Kiar assets and many others at crypto ETFs. I believe that we have more than 20 ETFs for crypto in Brazil right now, or at least not ETF, but uh, somehow investment funds, successful investment funds devoted to crypto. So I think that CVM is trying to figure out 
how it can foster innovation in the markets because we have several problems, several bottlenecks in the Brazilian stock market, right? We have the monopoly of B3. Uh, and, uh, until recently, many of the brokers, they they were uh, they had negative results. Only Xispe was allowed to have profits or a couple of them, then, and then BTG jumped in. And also, uh, we have this whole uh, influencer thing. People are investing in financial education and uh, offering not only stocks, but derivatives to retail investors, uh, futures, mostly futures contracts. So I think that CBM is trying to, you know, become a 4.0 regulator or something like that. Thanks for that color there. So. I'd like to dive in now to what the the guidance actually says. So I was kind of hoping you could walk us through what you see as the main points uh, of what this this guidance touches. And then afterwards, I'd, I'd like to dive in to what does this actually clarify and what does this not clarify? <laughs> like, what are the high points of what this actually says? So uh, basically, it is a 20-page document. Right, it has several concepts, key concepts. I believe that it is important to establish a taxonomy of crypto assets. What are crypto assets? And uh, it's important because uh, until recently, uh, in the draft bill that we uh, were able to discuss in all your po- uh, episodes of this podcast, we have the concept of virtual assets, right, which uh, is technology neutral. I believe the CVM uh, was uh, wanted to um, make it clear that they needed to uh, point out that crypto is much more important right now, discussing crypto in concrete terms than discussing virtual assets in abstract terms, right? Because the problem here that we have on the table is crypto. We have these white papers, we have these tokens, we have conflicts of interests. If you see, uh, if you look at uh, the SEC versus Ripple case, uh, the whole thing is because uh, the founders, they uh, sold tokens without disclosing it to the public and they uh, got the money from the token sales and invested in the company and they uh, decided whether uh, or not uh, new tokens are going to be issued. Uh, they they made the key technology technological decisions and things like that. So CVM understood that they needed to discuss this problem in concrete terms. So jumping in the document, there is a whole section indicating what could be the minimum information that someone who wants to offer security tokens. Uh, should disclose to the market, right? So I think it's a very interesting section for anyone to start reading. So what exactly do you need to provide? What are the contents of your white paper, right? So if you, uh, even if you are creating a DeFi project, right? You explaining what are the risks, in, in, so impermanent losses and uh, many other things, right? So I think that's important. The first, so the, the first two things that I would like to uh, highlight in this guidance is that we have key concepts. What is a crypto assets? It uses blockchain or distributed ledger technologies. It uses cryptographic algorithms, 
Okay, so it's different than virtual assets, which is a more, which is a broader concept. And then we have the taxonomy of tokens. Uh, there is a conversation with the other guidance, like the FATF guidance, the GAFI guidance, right, for uh, money laundry, the OCD guidance, and the OSCO guidance, things like that. So we have the payment tokens, which are cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, so Ripple wants uh, XRP to, to be considered as a payment token, not a security token. So it's important that if you use that token mostly for payments, most as currency, then it's going to be a cryptocurrency. No news on that. Then you have the utility tokens, uh, which is the ones that you use to acquire products or services in the future. And an important cat a new category, not exactly new, but uh, it's important to have it uh, uh, as uh, the core category in the whole discussion, which is asset reference tokens, right? Asset packet tokens. Why is that? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, got, I read a project that uh, the utility that you provided to the token holder is the profits for the token holder that's going to sell. This is no, this is no utility, right? This is a profit. This is investment. So right now, if your token is not considered a security, it could still be considered an asset-backed token, and that's okay, right? So you people are going to buy your token as investments. And it's not going to be a security, but it's not going to be a utility. So I believe that's all the kind of confusion in the terminology. So we have these three. So uh, and the asset-backed tokens include NFTs, include stable coins, and any other tokens that can be considered security tokens, or like the precatorial tokens, defend tokens, and the other tokens that uh, the carbon credit tokens, uh, and the other tokens issued by the the token houses here in Brazil, uh, they are asset-backed tokens, but they are not secured tokens. So first, the taxonomy, the concepts, this is a very important part of this document. And the second important part... Can I interject for there really quick? So with the question of stable coins, so even though, so stable coins, the idea is that these would be used for, for, for payment generally, right? Like a, a USDT or something. Um, but these would be these would fall under asset-backed tokens rather than payment tokens. Is that correct? Or, or I mean, I understand that they could they could take on a an investment. There's an invest. You know, if you want to invest in dollars, you could buy yes USDC stable coins. Uh, but I think generally speaking, the idea of a stable coin is like, oh, I can instead of paying in dollars, I'm paying in dollar peg stable coins. But mm -hmm. does is there a differentiation there, or does it provide any kind of context as to what? would be a payment token vis-a-vis -a, -vis a stable coin? So remember that crypto can be used as payment, as investment, or both, right? So I think that CVM does not state that explicitly, but I think that uh, a conclusion that we can uh, make uh, by reading this document is that Stable coins are probably used as investments or at least uh, to support investments, right? So you can somehow uh, collect your profits, your transitory profits, right? Uh, instead of keeping them in Bitcoin or whatever, in an altcoin, you uh, buy your dollar-backed tokens or any other, like the MakerDAO tokens or the DAI tokens, right? Uh, and then 
you keep those uh, values uh, in your wallet uh, before diving into a separate a new investment. So basically, it's kind of like derivative. In my personal opinion, I think that stable coins are derivatives, but uh, it's not convenient for the regulator to to treat them as derivatives, right? The whole uh, the CFTC is jumping in in the debate on, on Ripple and XRP, right? Indicating that oh, hey, probably this is a commodity or a financial commodity or a derivative or something that is under the jurisdiction of the CFTC and not a pure payment instrument. So I think that the answer to your question is. Uh, it is a sick is a side effect that stable coins can be used as payment. Mostly there are other investments in foreign currencies or things like that, or at least uh pivotal instruments uh, for investments. Like see DeFi. What is DeFi without stable coins? Right? Stable coins are the cornerstone of DeFi. So I think that stable coins are much more suited for investments than for payments. Yeah, I think that does make sense. I think the if you look at who is actually using or what are stable coins actually being used for right now? It's predominantly as a trading tool, right? It's either hedging. Like I, I want to get, ac- I live in Brazil. I want access to dollars or it's, it's a, okay, I want to take profits out of whatever altcoin I was in. And I want to move that into stable coins or mm-hmm. that's, it, that's pr- the predominant use case as of now. But I think ideally, at least these would be, these would function as payments tokens as well. But I think I, if you're looking at it, like what, what, what it's actually being used for now, it would be obviously be the investment case. So that, that does make yes. sense. Um, and then I, you were about to mention a second area before I cut you off. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so uh, let's, uh, it is section five of the document actually, which is, uh, they call it uh, information regime and how transparency is value in, in the whole uh, regulation. Uh, landscape, right? So they have this introductory section and then uh, they list most of the rules, the CVM rules that apply uh, to any issuer of securities, right? So we have the crowdfunding issuers, we have the uh, public offering rules, we just had uh, a new rule for public offerings published this year in Brazil. merging two different regimes in the past and i think that anyone uh, interested in crypto should uh, take a look, uh, look into that if you want to or uh, some at, at some point in the future if you want to conduct a uh, regulated offering and but then in section 5.1 uh, 5.2 things get quite interesting right so who what is the company that is the token issuer. Where is it located? Is it in Malta, Estonia, Lithuania, or whatever? My investors need to do need to understand that, right? So, what is the company in Brazil that you can uh, somehow engage with if you have a problem, right? So, if somehow you lose your money, if your software fails or if you want to go to the courts to dispute anything. So is there a company in Brazil that you can uh, talk to? This is important, right? What is the corporate structure of the whole thing? So this is from one example. I'm not going through all the examples, but then uh, CVM uh, recommends that what exactly you're going to do to uh, provide value for these tokens, right? What are the rights? 
for the token holder. So uh, if I need to understand what are the effort of the entrepreneur of others in the hobby test, what exactly is, is it that you're doing for this token to um, circulate, for to be traded, to increase in price and things like that? Are you going to pay dividends? Are you going to somehow put your profits in terms of uh, uh, in a fund that people could uh, it, have a stake on it, a share on this fund, and somehow they can uh, claim some of these values back and things like that. So what is it that's going on? And then going on, we, we have the the next session talks about infrastructure, right? Because blockchain is mostly about infrastructure. So uh, where are the tokens going to be located? Who is going to be the custody? providers, right, service providers, right, is it you or a third party that's going to uh, host these tokens and prevent conflicts of interest, right, uh, what can you do to prevent a rug pull, to mitigate the risks of a rug pull, things like that, right, so if you have an N NFT, what exactly is the NFT, is it just a pointer for a URL, uh, you have, a, if, you, it is, if it's an NFT for the reward asset who's going to take care of this asset right to prevent it for uh, somehow be um, the underlying uh, instrument the underlying asset for multiple nft emissions and things like that right uh, what is going to be the ecosystem for this nft because the whole value the, of the nfts relies on the ecosystem and the faith that people have in the value of this nft so who's going to provide that who's going to force uh, intellectual property rights, if necessary. So I think that it. Uh, I don't remember seeing any other regulation, <coughs> uh, worldwide uh, regulator, or uh, in any other jurisdictions, uh, going in detail of this information regime. And it's totally understandable because, well, uh, we have uh, this uh, dual world. You go by the book which is very expensive, and crypto founders want to avoid that at all costs, at this time at least. And you have the marginal regime, which is you can tell investors whatever you want. So I think that it is a very important step uh, in the center of this extremes, right? So, okay, let's try to go by the book, but with some kind of uh, flexible regime, CVM did not create a flexible regime. This is uh, one of the blind spots of this guidance. But uh, I agree that this, this is just a guidance. This is not a new rule. So we, we are going to talk about that later, right? What is missing in this guidance? Or at least people think they are missing in this guidance. But right now, I think that these are the major, of course, the concepts and the information regime. But then the most controversial part is the Huawei test. And I think that we can discuss that uh, after the, your next question. Sure, sure. So, so to this this, this point of like what gray areas remain um, mm -hmm. in in kind of I mean I haven't read the full document uh, just in full transparency, but like I have just been you know, I read sort of the key points of it, and I read a lot of the reactions that other people such, mm -hmm. such as yourself had been putting out uh, as to to what is. I'm neither a lawyer in Brazil nor the United States, so this isn't really my my area of expertise. Um, so I'm relying on people who do know what they're talking about. Um, sure. But it seems like the, the some of the gray areas 
are around this question of when do you need to do you need to register and if so under what circumstances mm-hmm. and it's and it seems like CVM has sort of outsourced in some capacity like okay you as the issuer need to do all the due diligence on the token yeah. you decide if it's if you need to register or not if you think that you don't need to register but then at some later date we decide that you were actually a security then we're going to come after you kind of seems like I don't know if I'm re- interpreting that correctly but it seems like there's some gray area around when exactly do you need to register, if at all? Well, I think that uh, your statement was true until before this guidance was issued, right? Because before that, you asked CVM, okay, these are all the public statements that I made, and you have to decide if you're talking security or not, and we're going after you if you think it is, but we are not necessarily going to tell you if it is secure or not. Uh, After this guidance, I think that we don't have all the information about the criteria that we needed, but we start to have some uh, input from the regulation that somehow can be useful for entrepreneurs in the near future, in the near term. So let me elaborate on that. Uh, Well, uh, some people said that uh, this guidance was not supposed to be a rule, and this is why it, it's incomplete or it does not provide uh, all the information that it, uh, we expected. But I think that in terms of creating uh, new rules for conduct of participants or creating uh, rules in, in, in the abstract sense, right, for the whole market and things like that, that's a first statement. But I think that this guidance is uh, the the most suitable uh, regulatory instrument for providing information about, hey, this is a public offer, this is uh, how we apply the how we test, because it it is expected to summarize the decisions, the statements uh, from the technical staff and from the commissioners. So first, uh, let me... uh, highlight the difference between the U.S. systems and the Brazilian system in, because uh, in the U.S. you have SEC versus Ripple, SEC versus Harbin Company, SEC versus someone because the SEC files a complaint and then the U.S. courts decide whether or not a token is a security and if it's a securities fraud or securities um, uh, infractions or some kind of that misconduct or, or some kind of uh, problem and then in Brazil it is a little bit different, right? Because we have the technical area of the CVM that act as a prosecutor. They perform market surveillance. Uh, if you report that someone is selling a token that is a security and is not registered, they collect the information and then they uh, request information for the the company sometimes. And finally, they say, okay, this is a security and is not registered. We are going to issue a stop order or we are going to create a, a to file a complaint. And then the judges are going to be the commissioners, right? In the US, Gary Gensler has to peace and all the other commissioners, they are not judges, right? They, uh, they have the, the, their uh, legal mandate, but they are not judges, and at least not in the sense that the CVM commission is and the president of CVM and all the other commissions are in Brazil. So this is a major difference between the two systems because uh, over time, 
the Howey test, for example, it is a result of the cases that were decided by the American courts, right, the U.S. courts. So over time in Brazil, we have several cases that are decided by the CVM commissioners, and at some point, they kind of need to wrap up, right, the major conclusions. We have uh, uh, dozens of cases of for new products not related to crypto that could be considered as securities or not not considered securities. So I think that uh, we are starting to realize that. In Brazil, we're starting to realize that we need to summarize with kind of like a kind of like of a, uh, executive summary in a document, right? You need to provide a summary of the decision criteria for all the major cases. So this is what this guidance is. So jumping in uh, this section of the guidance first for public offer. We had the issue for Binance, right? They got a stop order for offering derivatives to Brazilian residents, just like Bybit in Brazil recently. And then, what exactly is a public offering to Brazilian citizens, right? Is it that you create a site website in Brazilian Portuguese? Or even if you are not creating anything in Brazilian Portuguese, uh, but somehow you pay for ads to Brazilian citizens and social media and things like that, uh, is it enough right, to get a public offering for Brazilian residents? So what this guidance says is that depending on the specific case, if you somehow engage, actively engage in uh, trying to uh, get Brazilian residents to access your website and acquire your products and services, then you can be a subject of a stop order, right? So this is important because we the, the guidance on that was something for 2005, right? And and then uh, we these were the early days of the internet and CVM said that back then that if you have a login and password preventing users for accessing your offering, then it might not be considered public offering. Then you have the stock in houses with hundreds or thousands of investors uh, buying tokens after providing login and password. Is it a private offering, right, for thousands of investors? So this is the first criteria. I think that CBM was very, uh, but uh, it was it was a helpful information in terms of deciding whether or not. Uh, an offer is public or private. And then finally, we have the collective nature of the investment, which is not really an issue here. Most of the crypto sales are collective, meaning that we have a company that gathers resources, gathers uh, funding for collective users for uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of users. But then the two most important and controversial points for the Howey test in the US and Brazil is the economic benefits, right? And the expectation of economic benefits and the efforts of the entrepreneur or others, the effort of others. So the effort of others is something that the SEC usually develops as the uh, active participant concept, right? If you can identify a company that controls the whole thing, then you have an active participant. 
right? They decide about uh, updates on the software, about uh, when new tokens are going to be issued, how many tokens, what are going to be the prices of the tokens, what are the exchanges where the tokens is going to be listed, and things like that. So Gary Gensen uh, said recently, uh, if you are a lawyer and you are going to be hired by a crypto company, there's always someone sitting on the other side of the table hiring you, right? You're, uh, you don't sign a contract with a diffuse collective, with a DAO or something like that. There's always someone which, or at least a, a couple of people that somehow controls the whole thing. They are kind of like the board or uh, the entrepreneurs, the founders. So you have a company. And this company is probably the issuer of the securities that could that should be registered with the SEC and the CVM. Uh, there, they do not go in that level of detail, right? They just provide a generic statement on that, and I think that uh, they it's it is a negative point for this guidance. But then this the last uh, a criteria criterium which is the more uh, uh, the most important to me is the economic benefit. The thing here, uh, Aaron, is this is a, this is going to be very important for all the crypto founders and entrepreneurs uh, in Brazil. If you develop a token that does not pay dividends or does not pay interest directly or indirectly, right? In terms of uh, if your token holder they cannot collect any profit other than selling the token in secondary markets then I believe that in the near futures these tokens uh, will not be considered securities mm -hmm. okay this is not something that the guidance says explicitly okay but uh, it avoids saying that uh, it, it just say that if you pay the dividends of interest it's going to be security period mm -hmm. Okay. But then we are starting to get, I, I heard that some companies, some founders, some processes, they uh, ask CBMs, uh, oh, this is, is my token security? So they are engaged in uh, consultations with the CBM and they are starting to get uh, responses saying, because you do not pay dividends or things like that, because the only uh, economic benefit for your token holders is selling those tokens in secondary markets and you do not have any direct responsibility for the second mar secondary markets to exist then it's not a security so if there's anything of this whole conversation that your audience uh, can uh, take notes on this episode is that uh, there are probably going to be uh, several tokens that will not be considered securities because the only way for people to profit from them is selling them on secondary markets. And if your company does not somehow guarantee that there's going to be a secondary market for these tokens, then probably you're not going to be considered an active participant and this token is not going to be considered a security. And this is a major difference. That's super important because that that's a very clear distinction from where we are headed here in the US under the current regime, which the, the the current this isn't like formal guidance but in just you know statements from Gary Gensler it's basically like anything that's not bitcoin is a security 
right? It's yes. Essentially. <laughs> it's, a mas- it's a maximalist, but not yeah. Bitcoin maximalist. It's a security maximalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Whereas what you're saying is, I mean, that's where really the gray area is around these, these quote-unquote utility tokens or network tokens or however you want to call them, where they don't provide any equity in anything. They don't pay. They don't pay any dividends. They don't. There's no assets backing them. They're just. They're just. Uh, you know, essentially, a component of the network. You have by holding these tokens, you essentially have access to this network or a participatory rights in this network. And as the network grows, uh, in theory, the value of the token also grows. And the whole question of a common enterprise, like how could, is a is a is a decentralized network a common enterprise? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to some of like the Hinman speech from 2018 from SEC, you know, official gave this speech talking about how Ethereum was sufficiently decentralized enough to not be considered security, uh, even though that's not being kind of walked back uh, amidst this Ripple lawsuit. I mean, it's kind of dives into another question I want to ask, which was, how does this guidance clarify things potentially for uh, companies like Mercado Bitcoin or Leaky who have been issuing these fixed income tokens? And they've been probed by the by the CVM over some of these things, but I think everyone would agree that these are obviously securities. The whole point is that they they pay a fixed rate. It's obviously a security. Nobody's disputing that. Um, a lot of these other areas where the CVM has said in, in this guidance, they said, okay, these particular assets are securities. If if they're if they're tokenized, they would be considered securities, just as they would be if they're not tokenized. But I think the real question mm-hmm. comes down to what you were discussing there, which is. These utility tokens, network tokens, these the gray area around these things where they maybe they were ultimately issued by like some some somebody has to issue them, right? There has to be a centralized yes. entity that issues them. But yes. can these these tokens effectively sort of shape shift into uh from securities into uh either commodities or other some or some sort of new type of asset class? Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of people arguing for different proposals on how you consider these things mm-hmm. or basically arguing that like they may start security, but they kind of shape shift into something else. Right. Uh, as the network becomes centralized as people actually use them. So yeah, so that's a super important point. So I just wanted to, you know, double click on that and be like, okay, this is, this is a clear point of differentiation between what we have mm-hmm. currently C- kind of stepping back here again. I mean, I think that the reception from the market uh, generally in Brazil was, was really largely that this was, this was largely this document was largely uh, an amalgamation of sorts of okay all these these are a lot of things that we already sort of knew in some way shape or form but it's nice to have like a comprehensive you know document kind of detailing all this detailing the CVM's current thinking on this we may not have really moved the ball down the field much so to speak to borrow an American sports metaphor it does show that the the CVM is like thinking proactively on these issues. And it does signal an openness toward this token ecosystem, uh, sort of supporting and, and letting this token ecosystem evolve kind of naturally instead of trying to prescribe a bunch of rules dictating that, okay, you can only issue tokens for these things and these things and these things. Yes. And otherwise, we're going to come after you with, uh, which is essentially what's happening here in the US right now. Would you agree with kind of that general sentiment that, okay, maybe this there isn't anything new here, but it is a helpful this is helpful in terms of putting forward the CVM's thinking on this and essentially signaling to the market that like, hey, we're open for business on this particular subject. I think it has a very important symbolic value. Uh, one of the last sentences in the guidance is go for CVM, engage in consultations and 
we're going to discuss, we have the sandbox. They did not uh, indicate whether they're going to have a new sandbox cycle in the near future, but I believe the three companies that were granted the sandbox authorization, they are doing very interesting things like uh, like a blockchain-based crowdfunding or a blockchain OTC for secured tokens under certain uh, constraints. So I think that uh, the future is very promising in this area and CVM is not labeling crypto as uh, casinos, chips, or things like that, like uh, all crypto is Ponzi or whatever, all crypto is fraud. Some, sometimes I get the impression that the SEC uh, treats crypto like that, right? Uh, most crypto is Ponzi uh, and and we need to put everyone in jail or apply sanctions to these people. And this is not the, the mindset for CBM in Brazil. And then uh, I think that what frustrated uh, market actors, I think that we had three uh, points that were expected and they were not present in its guidance. First, people wanted to somehow have more objective criteria for uh, this fixed income tokens, right? For, for those diffused DAO tokens, I think that it's kind of clear that uh, the regulator is going to have a hard time trying to qualifying them uh, as securities because you don't have a clear benefit of orders, you have a diffused diffuse collective right just like you said but then when you get this fixed income tokens uh 10 years ago or so we had this case in cvm that uh we have this title called the ccb which is kind of like a bank uh bank credit uh note something like that and if a financial institution is the issuer of this title and it does not back the payment for the title, then it was considered a security because the risks of the underlying uh, debtor was transferred for the final investor. So the financial institution was just an intermediary selling that title for the final investors. So you have the risks. Uh, if someone does not pay that, then the investors are going to have losses. So CBM understood that those were securities. But then, if the financial institutions, they backed the payments, and okay, the investor is not going to suffer any losses, and we are going to deal with the debtor if he does not pay uh, the, the the value and the due date and maturity date and things like that, it, then it, this title was not considered security, right? It's a very important case uh, where the how it has for the Brazilian uh, market was uh, before crypto, it was the most relevant case uh, indicating the effort of others in this because in the CBM law there is an exception that even though you pass the Huawei test but if is a title that is issued by a financial institution regulated by the central bank and it, it, this financial institution is responsible for backing the payments then it's not a security mm. it's something that does not exist in the US so I think that Mercado Bitcoin, Liki, BlockBR, and other token houses from Brazil, they're trying to figure out how can, how they can uh, somehow uh, apply this exception for the 
their tokens, right? Some people, they were trying to, hey, this is a private offering, but then you don't have a private offer for thousands of people, right? For at least hundreds of people. And then you need to figure out, okay, I'm a token house. I'm going to issue this token for financing, I don't know, a real estate project or something like that. And then the, the company, the underlying company, that is the source of the credit, the source of the uh, benefit that you're going to pay for investors, and you're going to capture the spread of the of the operation. If, the, if this company does not pay, what's going to happen, right? So CBM was not clear in this guidance uh, whether or not these fixed income tokens are secured. So this frustrated some uh, market actors. So this was the first problem. Second problem was uh, the investment funds. Right. Here in Brazil, if you're an investor, you can buy crypto directly. But if you are a portfolio manager, you cannot do that for your investors. You need to go through investment funds abroad. Right. So basically, uh, CVM is worth is concerned that okay, who is going to provide the custody of this crypto? Right. Uh, the first gatekeeper is the portfolio manager is going to be held responsible if something bad occurs. If you buy a Dogecoin or some shitcoin or something like that, then we can go after the portfolio manager. But at, at this time, I think that CBM is studying whether or not it needs a secondary gatekeeper, meaning that you have a market infrastructure say, hey, these are the tokens. Uh, we are going to take care of these tokens. We are separate for the uh, portfolio manager and the gatekeeper for the fund industry, which is the administrador fiduciario. I don't think that we have a, a direct tr translation for that in, in the US. I I don't think so. But uh, so this, this guidance did not uh, allow the investment funds to have crypto directly, right, in their portfolio. But I believe that it's. It, um, in a month or so, in a couple of months, CVM is going to uh, somehow update uh, this uh, understanding. I think that they are engaging discussions with market actors, market participants, and uh, it wasn't. It, it, it was not the time to put it in the guidance. Something I actually wanted to ask you about because this is one of these areas that seems quite confusing as to why was this rule enacted in the first place that these portfolio managers could not source. Crypto, they could not source liquidity essentially domestically. They had to go abroad to do so. Was it was it there just weren't enough like qualified actors in Brazil at the time that you could acquire these assets from, or it, it just it seems kind of like a strange rule to me, I guess. So yes, it is. <laughs> how, why was the in the first place? Like, why did this even exist? Why did this rule exist? In January 2018, it was the first time that CVM uh, stated that if you're an investment fund you are not allowed to have crypto even uh, in, indirectly, right? Directly or indirectly. You do not have, you're not allowed to have any exposure to crypto as a risk factor of your portfolio, period. Okay? So you could, uh, this this was the first study of CBM. You cannot offer investment funds for the market with any exposure to crypto. But then uh, in Brazil, we have a rule that uh, if you 
have qualified investors, accredited investors, equivalent, right? You can invest in a fund that has assets abroad in any other jurisdiction that is uh, that ha that meets a minimal regulatory requirements, right? Any jurisdiction associated to YOSC, for example. Okay, and then why, if I am a qualified investor, why am I not allowed to uh, put my money in a fund that invests in a fund abroad that in that jurisdiction everything's fine for crypto, the regulator allows them that that fund to invest in crypto and things like that. So why am am I not allowed to do that? So the, the first statement is okay, we're going to allow qualified investors. Uh, we're going to apply the rules for funds in in uh, foreign countries in for in foreign jurisdictions, and then we have two requirements. Either uh, you are a retail investor and this fund only twenty percent of the portfolio of this fund is allowed to be in foreign foreign jurisdiction, and if in that foreign jurisdiction investing in crypto is okay, then we're fine with that. Okay, so you can offer investment funds for retail investors up to 20% exposure in foreign jurisdiction funds. So this was the rule. And if you are a qualified investor, then you can have a, all the whole portfolio in investment funds in foreign jurisdiction, as long as this jurisdiction allows crypto. Okay, so this was the beginning of it. So in September that year, uh, we had a new statement from CBM, clarifying that okay. So from January to September 2018, we discussed with the market. CBM discussed with the market the whole thing. Uh, so it was not clear. We had a gray area from January to September. In January, you cannot have any exposure to crypto. In September, you can have exposure to crypto through foreign jurisdiction funds. That's it. So this is how this rule was. It's not exactly a rule. It's a officio circular, which is a kind of guidance, right? We have several kinds of guidance. We have parecidio orientação, officio circular. Uh, it's a guidance that is issued not by the commissioner, but uh, by the uh, technical area of the CVM. So we have this the, this uh, area for investment funds and they have the autonomy to provide their own guidance without they discuss this with the commissioners, but then they go to the market directly, not through the commissions. Okay, so this is the difference. And then we have the ETFs later on. GM allowed, okay, besides these indirect investments through uh, foreign jurisdiction funds, you are allowed to have ETFs for crypto. And now we are going to the final chapter, which is, okay, you do not need to go abroad to invest in crypto, but who is going to hold your crypto? Is it you? Is it a company in Brazil? Is it a company in uh, any other country? What are going to be the fiduciary duties for this uh, company that's going to provide uh, this custody services? So basically, that's it. Got it. The responsibility for deciding which crypto you're going to invest, the portfolio manager. But then the infrastructure, who is going to take care of your crypto, right? And how can we force 
the regulation, the Brazilian regulation for these companies. So this is what is being discussed right now. Got it. And it appears we'll be getting some more clarification on this in the coming months. Definitely. Definitely. Folks were hoping this would be in, included in the guidance, but it, it was not included in the guidance, but it will be addressed and, and rectified. Yes. Coming, you know. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, cool. And the final point is just that suppose that uh, I am a, a great crypto investor and then I publish the website and then, okay, you can, uh, uh, you can put your crypto. Uh, I'm going to be your portfolio management for crypto. So I'm not going to invest in securities. I'm not going to invest in bonds or anything that is regulated, only in crypto. I'm going to create a portfolio for ETH, for DeFi tokens. I'm going to use all my knowledge, to my best knowledge, to uh, invest your resources, your crypto resources. I'm not going to accept any payments in fiat money or anything. You just pay me in crypto, either stable coins or bitcoins or ETH or whatever. Okay, so does this person need to be regulated? This is a question that the guidance does not answer. Most people think that they do not need to be regulated, but then it's a kind of investment product, right? Because the fact that you do not invest in securities is one thing, but the other thing is that you are uh, somehow offering a service which is a public offering, right? for something that uh, you were promising on future economic benefits that you rely on your effort. So is it a security or not in terms of the Huawei tests? Even though you're not investing in securities, but only in crypto, there are no securities. So this is an open question. And at this time you have offers in Telegram groups, in Discord groups, and any other social media and instant messaging applications for people that they behaviors Either or uh, either financial advisors or portfolio management mm. for crypto, but they are not regulated. So should CVM regulate that? I think that is a very important blind spot for this guidance. Mm. And I don't think people discussing uh, people for many reasons. People either they're not interested in <laughs> bringing that to spotlight, or uh, I don't see that uh, that question being uh, asked a lot. And I think it should be asked because you know Kim Kardashian just settled that uh, $1 million payment for SEC because she was recommending an investment without disclosing that she got paid to recommend that investment, which is a typical uh, financial advisor rule, right? Should we have those rules for crypto? Libertarians would say, no, we don't. But then, how can we prevent conflicts of interest? How can we prevent pump and dump, right? Sponsored pump and dumps in this case. Right. If your portfolio manager, if your crypto portfolio managers go away with your crypto, what are you going to do? Right. If you don't think you need protection, that's fine. But what if you think you need protection? Does he have anything? Does he have anything to do with the CBM or SEC or whoever? I think that's an important question to ask. That it's not covered by the guy. Yeah, it ties into this question of influencer marketing, right? And so much of crypto is heavily reliant on influencers. And there's a lot of kind of curious behavior that goes on. I definitely see the validity of that. I, I would also say that even in sort of tr the world of traditional financial advising, at least here in the US of how it, how it works, it's 
there's still a lot of kind of shady conflicts of interest. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, you go to your financial advisor and and they're trying to steer you into a set of like 10 different mutual funds that that he's going yes. to get a nice commission on if he sells. <laughs> and some of this stuff, I think, is unavoidable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Right? As long as there's these intermediaries, like there's always going to be some sort of financial and, you know, the antidote is disclosure. But then the problem is like nobody's going to read a 50 page disclosure of legally yes. terms and conditions. Nobody reads that stuff. People don't care. <laughs> exactly. So, they just don't care. So some of this stuff, I think, is is you can put in these kind of legal you know, safeguards and things. But a lot of this is just is just unavoidable, right? Practically speaking. But I do think trying to raise awareness that, hey, like Kim Kardashian is actually being paid to promote this. Like you may want to know that before you ape into this particular token Mm -hmm. or the people who are, you know, organizing these like pump and dump groups and things are like, these these are people are obviously being paid to do this, you know, sort sort of basic stuff, I guess, that that maybe people who have been crypto for a long time understand. And we avoid these things like the plague because we know they're scams. Uh, But people Mm -hmm. who are maybe just new or just entering or they don't have uh you know much information as of yet that that's something that they might be like oh yes. something a great deal right so the goal is really to protect those people and make sure those people have access to the information they need to make good decisions so so that's a sticky point i i, I think that's that's one that there's not really an ideal solution to but there is you know it, it's an education question and it's also a, i think having some sort of legal safeguards in place is a good idea but practically speaking people are going to ape into all sorts of stuff uh without reading disclosures. yeah so yeah <laughs> you have the right to be a fool but i think that do you have the right to be made a fool right, right. people can can, the, can people made a fool out of you that's the the point yeah yeah 100 100 right? so a couple final questions here that i wanted to get through mm-hmm. uh before we wrap up here you know one of the points that we, we talked about earlier and that has been made quite frequently by, I mean, I've heard this brought up by numerous people the last couple of months even, is that the CVM is is very under-resourced as it relates to yes. not, not just human capital, uh, but also technology to be able to, I mean, there's one guy, I think I quoted my most recent newsletter where I was writing about this, where, you know, he's basically, look, they don't have the, they don't even have to have the resources to manage traditional mm-hmm. financial markets, like, much less crypto financial markets. What is the issue here, I guess? Like, and is this, is, is part of the reason for even issuing this guidance right now, his opinion right now, to try to get more money, more resources? I mean, I guess you could argue any bureaucracy that's ever existed always needs more money, right? But, uh, mm-hmm. but in this case, is this, is this sort of a plea like, hey, like this is a real, this is a real area that we need to dive into more. We need more resources, we need more funding. And if, and if we don't get that, like we can't really do our job protecting people, et cetera. Well, I, I think that this is a very important and difficult question uh, because uh, in, in 2015, I wrote an article, an academic article, uh, studying uh, the, the budget for CVM from 2010 to 2015. And uh, the we have the so-called discretionary spending, which is everything that you spend besides uh, paying salaries. Okay, and for people, right? Uh, so the budget for discretionary spending for CVM from 2010 to 2015 kept constant in something around 40 million reais, okay? Despite inflation at that time, 
and uh, this amount has not increased in the past years. So I think that in nominal terms, it remained constant or even decreased a little. So how can you uh, oversight? How can you conduct uh, market surveillance? Right? How can you oversee the market with uh, four trillion realizing market capitalization, with seven trillion realizing assets for the fund industry, with more than uh, five million retail investors? Right? How can you do your job? With 40 million realizing in budgets, right? It's, it, even if you're not thinking in dollars, but you can see the discrepancy, right, in terms of the, your budget constraints and the size of the markets and the number of actors. So CVM has been relied on self-regulation to conduct that. So we have the BSCM, B3, and BIMA. BSCM is the kind of like uh, it could be an equivalent of FINRA. In the United States, okay, it's not exactly the same, but it could be the equivalent. And the MBIMA is the self-regulatory agency, and it is association for many other purposes. But it became the voluntary self-regulatory uh, entity for uh, investment funds and institutional investors and things like that. So basically, CVM delegated many of its functions over time. For the financial advisor, we have APIMAC, which is association that. Uh, performs oversight for uh, financial advisors. Then you have the uh, Association Planejar, which provides a, a, a market oversight and, and conduct enforcement and rules and code of ethics and everything for the financial players. So basically, CVM uh, relied on private actors to perform this enforcement. I personally speaking, I don't think this is the ideal institutional design because you, you know you have conflicts of interest, right? When private actors apply the rules, uh, and, and for example, I have many friends in BSM. They perform a very uh, uh, a wonderful job uh, in performing market surveillance, but then uh, they have to find, they have to punish. But like sanctions and the clients and the customers of B3, right? So how can B3 punish their own clients, their own companies that they engage, they do business with, right? They they have been doing that in the past. They've been doing that with a lot of efficiency. But I don't think that this is the ideal institutional design. And then it's I don't think that capital market securities uh, regulation in Brazil it's a priority. Right, we have many, many other uh, issues here in Brazil, and I think that the banking sector is so big and so important in political terms, in economical terms, that it kind of suffocates mm. security market. This is my personal opinion, right? So, if you see the budget of the central bank, the autonomy, and the number of uh, public servants in the central bank, and you know, uh, and I'm not complaining it, but it's just. Uh, a public policy for fostering the credit market instead of fostering and promoting the development of the financial markets. Financial market in Brazil, in my opinion, is seen as a casino or a, a place for very wealthy people, speculators, um, and, and and I don't think that at this 
at this time, and, and, and then you have the interest rates, right? They they are so, right now, we have real interest rates that are uh, amazing. I don't have any uh, incentive to go to the stock market in Brazil. So in terms of public policy, right? I can buy uh, treasury bonds and then I, I'm guaranteed to have the return mostly, even uh, with the inflation. I'm going to have a very interesting returns, 30%, 40% a year in nominal terms. And in real terms, it's a little uh, lower than that. But then it's not something that you find uh, uh, in, in other countries. So basically, I think that in Brazil, uh, other than in other jurisdictions, we are struggling to have financial markets. We have capital markets, right? Securities markets as a priority for investors, for the state, for, uh, you know, the authorities in general. Mm. So I think that is just a consequence of a much uh, broader phenomenon, which is it's not important in our culture. It's not important in, in our, nobody's going to say that publicly, right? Oh, the financial markets is very important for financing the economic activity, blah, blah, blah. But then when it comes to pay the check, where's the money? Where's my budget? How can I enforce my rules and my regulations? I don't have any. So it's not important. Right. right? So, so nobody if will you... say that except you anyways, because you're, <laughs> you're independent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, people people wouldn't, wouldn't say that publicly. Uh, people would say that out, out loud. Right? It's, it's sacred, right? The financial market. But they're not. If you if you listen to actions and not words, if you pay attention to actions and not words, it's not important for the authorities right. for the Brazilian authorities. And I hope that the new chair of CVM, the new commission, has somehow helped to change that. Because uh, I don't I don't know I, I'm not criticizing the past uh, commissioners or anything like that, but uh, you have to fight right with yeah. all their agendas. Yeah. And I think that that helps provide some color around a statistic that you hear thrown around a lot, which is there's more people, there's more Brazilians invested in crypto than there are in mm -hmm. the stock market. Yes. And, um, you know, I think one of the reasons for that, that maybe doesn't necessarily get get a lot of play airplay is like what you were discussing, like you can like fixed income products, you can make quite a bit of yes. nice returns on these fixed income products, whereas uh, buying shares of Petrobras or something is, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that, right? It's very, exactly. very subject to, uh, there's a lot of macroeconomic factors and, and domestic political factors that are. Exactly. You, and people do not have the mindset of uh, buying stocks for dividends or anything like that. Right. So right. I, I prefer going to crypto when I'm going to get potentially 20%, 30%. Which is well volatility. That's let's go into that. Yeah, and instead of combining Petrobras value or any other company, right? For example, Petrobras and value are responsible for half the volume of negotiations in Brazil. Oh, really? So most of the stocks are illiquid. Mm. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so so it's it's just a question of of the a lack of depth of capital markets in Brazil and yes. the, the amount of people investing in these is is very limited vis-a-vis -vis the amount of people investing in other products, whether it be fixed income or whether it be crypto. Exactly. And and therefore the CVM, the role of the CVM is essentially like, it, it's kind of this little pet cottage industry of, of financial markets that it's overseeing. And there's, there's 
Yeah. And from what I understand, there's not a whole lot of like IPO activity. A lot of the main, you know, the main companies, if if they're big enough, like they'll try to do what like Nubank did and go IPO in New York. Um, yeah. It, it, so it, that that's interesting. I mean, maybe this is like deviating <laughs> pretty far from where we. No problem. You bet. I think in summary, you don't get votes if you say I'm going to develop the capital markets in Brazil. That's not going to make you popular. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, it's a non-starter. So, so in that sense, the uh, I can definitely understand why the CVM is trying to inject themselves into this because crypto is obviously this. It's a crypto is a little bit more of a sexy issue than like yes. than just capital markets generally, right? Where oh, we need, yes. we need better rules around crypto. That's going to get a lot more of attention than um, oh, we need better rules around capital markets or something. So yes, and you have the scams. For example, uh, the first CVM said that I do not have anything to do with federal speech coins, and then we have the federal prosecutors and everything. And this was a scandal. And recently, CVM said, oh, we review our understanding, and now we think this is a security and I'm going to enforce our regulations on federal speech coins. So basically, this is how the 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 thing works right and i think I, I think that's i mean that's been one of the criticisms of, of the sec in the u.s right is that they're going after all these things like kim kardashian you know yes. but then they're they're going after trying to like get easy wins by suing these various like shitcoin projects and stuff yes. uh for I- illegal securities issuances and then at the same time things like celsius and voyager are imploding and people are losing tons of money and and people are like well where is the sec i thought they're supposed to be protecting us from this stuff that's what they're they say they're for right exactly. they're 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 going after ripple on this crazy thing like they're going after all these other things that are kind of irrelevant and it just looks like a lot of grandstanding um when all these things that are actually like like how many people like lost money investing in ethereum max token like mm-hmm. i mean it, I mean, I I remember I remember when they launched it at at Bit. I was <laughs> like they they had at Bitcoin Miami in 2021. They had Floyd May- Mayweather on stage, and he was promoting his Ethereum Max thing. And they booed him off the stage at a at, it was at a Bitcoin conference, a Bitcoin maximalist conference. They booed him off the stage. <laughs> it was like, okay, this thing is ridiculous. Like, if anybody invests in this, they probably deserve to lose their money. But this, but the point is, like, okay, there's all these things that the regulate like these regulators seem to be chasing these they seem to be chasing you know political like kind of media political grandstanding easy win cases exactly uh gary gensler shows up on cnbc touting how he's cracking down on kim kardashian and generates a ton of publicity around it um meanwhile all these things that are actual ponzi schemes are like imploding and people are losing tons of money and yes. and it's like well where is the sec right shouldn't why weren't they complicated question here i guess but I mean, there's always going to be limited resources, right? Uh, like I said, any any bureaucracy is always going to say, like, oh, we need more money. Like, we just need more money mm-hmm. to do this or do this better. Definitely, we need more so, people. We need more money. Oh, yeah. that's that's every bureaucracy that's ever existed in the history of mankind, right? Th- this will be an interesting one to watch to see if he, the CVM, is able to get itself kind of into this conversation a bit more, get more funding, uh, get more just influence over the dialogue around crypto legislation, um, which mm-hmm. was the last thing I wanted to actually ask about was sort of what's your prognosis on on this legislation, especially now that Expedito Neto, who was the <laughs> main sponsor, uh, is not expected, but throws a wrench in some things. And then the other question I wanted to ask too around this was, to what extent does this guidance, 
that the CVM has issued like really matter if there's legislation coming down the pipeline like in theory like okay like congress could just dictate to the CVM like okay this is what you're responsible for so they could they could basically nullify everything that the CVM just did right if they they wanted to uh, i guess the question is like how how relevant will this guidance be moving forward given that there is legislation that's coming uh down the pipeline uh in some form mm-hmm. at some point here <laughs> and, okay. and i guess when do you think that will will be i guess would be the last question uh, that's a that's a million dollar question but then uh, let, let's start with the easiest one i don't think that uh the the law the new law right that could be enacted by the uh, the congress they could nullify right anything that cvm says but they're not likely to do that okay because uh remember that the bill is supposed to create a virtual asset regulatory regime that does not apply to securities. So everything that CVM is talking about is when tokens are securities, this is what you gotta do. And these are the criteria for us to decide when tokens are securities and in other terms, whatever is the regulatory regime for the virtual assets, uh, when this regime will apply or when it's not going to be applied. So we're going to have two separate uh, bills, right? The CVM Act from 1976 and this new uh, rule, this new law, right? This new uh, regulation. And then uh, they are not, uh, they are kind of mutually exclusive, right? It is, if it is a security token, it's not going to be a virtual asset, period. This is how it has been developed up to this point. Okay, so I think that this guidance is will still hold even if this uh, bill passes in the near term. Uh, I believe that uh, one of the first things that I told you when you invited me to the other episode of the podcast, you remember that we recorded twice because there are a lot of things happening in between. Uh, and, and one of the first things that I had a bet that this law would not pass this year. And I think that I'm about to win that bet. But anyway, anyway who knows? We have a couple of months left. Uh, I've heard that last week it was uh, scheduled to be discussed, but I don't think that we have, I don't think it's important, right, for the current Congress. If it passes, it's probably is because someone is pushing it to pass in terms of lobbying. Uh, I, I'm, I would be really surprised if this law passes this year. Why is that? Because the pirates, they don't want the law because no law is the uh, wild west that benefits the strong ones, right? The ones that are currently market leaders and to do whatever they want because they're big, because they're strong, right? So somehow they support this because it's not going to have immediate effects. As I told you before, uh, probably the effects we're going to see in 18 months, 24 months. So it's good to tell everyone, hey, I'm cooperating with the authorities. I'm pro-compliance, pro-regulation, but uh, and, uh, your kitchen is, if Gordon Ramsay visited your kitchen, it's going to be hell. 
Okay, so that's that's one one thing. And on the other hand, the pro-compliance actors, the pro-compliance stakeholders, uh, they really throw the towel, right? They're really throwing the towel and say, okay, let's pass it, whatever it is, and we're going to discuss this in, with the central bank or whoever's going to uh, detail this regulation. So, but they're not so much interested in this law, right? It lost its appeal because many of the provisions that we discussed, the segregation of assets, uh, the local entity, um, the communication, the mandatory communication to the anti-monolaundry entity and all the other things, uh, they're probably going to be rejected, right? So it's not that they really they're desperate for this law to be passed, but they want some law, right? They want a symbolic uh, token, <laughs> uh, pun intended, that uh, uh, the crypto is going to evolve in Brazil. So this is why I think that nobody is really passionate about this law at this time, not even right the major sponsor. So I think that uh, we are and we have a fertile um, soil for new projects to be elaborated. And somehow I think that CVN can contribute to that, and right? Because it, it, it does ahead. seem that like this this really opens the door, yes. for, like Exvigito Netu losing, uh, combined with maybe the the apathy of some of the existing actors who were pushing this so heavily before. This does yes. open the door a bit for uh, other definitely to try to shape the legislation, whether that be the CVM, whether that be other companies. In the space yes, or, or uh, you know, kind of that that maybe thought they were too late to the game to really have much of a lobbying presence, but now they realize like, hey, this this is it's it's open again, uh, or yes. uh, or other deputies and senators who realize that hey, maybe this is an issue that I want to they want to you know strap themselves to their to you know I, I want to get that guy want to get on this train so to speak right like I want to get mm -hmm. on yes. like this is an issue that will be like a politically winning issue to be like associated with long term right um exactly so or 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 they may just be opponents and they they want to they want to kill it right and they're like oh we want to mm -hmm. inject inject we want to write some legislation introduce legislation that will like sort of throttle this industry or slow it down so yes. um so this really does open the door for a lot of new actors to come in it seems like which so so you still you're still of the opinion that this is not going to pass this year most likely like you think this will get punted to the next conference. yes really. yeah okay yes probably next year and I I I I would say that at this time you know well if after the elections if in a couple of weeks two weeks after the elections this law does not pass I think that probably that a new law a new project is going to be presented uh, increases a lot like 70% 80% so I don't think I would be very surprised at this time if this law passes this year but again who am I <laughs> well you're a reasonably knowledgeable person on these subjects <laughs> yeah um, that's my best that's my best guess that's all well well thanks so much Isaac uh really appreciate your time here is there anything any final thoughts you wanted to leave us with on either uh legislation or or on the CVM guidance anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to articulate I think that uh, the key question for that we should keep asking ourselves is do we want absolute freedom 
or do we want any intervention right because as you said people will not read uh, lots of pages of disclosures people they just don't care they are hypnotized by volatility so what exactly are we doing here right spending time discussing laws and creating rules and regulation does all these work make any sense right can we produce any meaning for this work so this is the question that we should ask ourselves uh, and keep discussing it all the time right can crypto be regulated do we want regulation which regulation do we want okay so that's it great 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 well thanks again for your time here um where can folks go to learn more about you or to, to get in touch with you i i keep posting things in my linkedin page so i probably if you connect with me in linkedin i'm planning to uh launch a website for, for more clipping news and not i'm not planning on selling anything it's just a repository of all my notes and, and you know a place uh, outside any specific platforms for discussion and I will let you know about that not only for crypto but for financial regulation in general because I think that in a couple of years we're going not to be so focused on crypto but this whole thing is going to be diluted in a much um, broader phenomenon which is uh, financial innovation through technology yeah, I, I fully agree with that. That's that's definitely where things are heading. Um, yeah. Well, great. Well, well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Uh, great to have you back on the show and uh, look forward to having you again. Thank you. And congratulations on your great work on the newsletter. I keep reading it. It's a very interesting and useful information. I keep translating that back to Portuguese to my students sometimes because you provide the same reason. <laughs> it's quite useful. Thank you, Aaron. Amazing. Thank you. thank you for the kind words. Much appreciated. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.